The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by Storyblocks. It's the first and only subscription-based stock media company that offers unlimited downloads of member library content for a modest annual fee of just $149 a year per site, while providing its contributing artists 100% of the sales revenue from their photographs, video, or audio. To find out more, visit storyblocks.com forward slash candid. This is Ibarionex, and this is The Candid Frame. One of photography's greatest strengths is its ability to shine a light onto the darker areas of human nature. There's Lewis Hines' work on child labor during the early part of the 20th century, or W. Eugene Smith's documentation of mercury poisoning on the village of Minamata in Japan, or Mary Ellen Mark's work on homeless children in the Northwest. These and many other photographers like them use the camera to turn our gaze onto something that might otherwise be too easily ignored. Ada Trio's work, documenting the lives of prostitutes on the U.S.-Mexican border, started off as an examination of immigration issues, but quickly turned into an exploration of how some women are led into a life of violence, drug abuse, and premature death. These photographs and the stories behind them help us to reconsider our assumptions and judgments of the women who become lost to this world. Well, welcome to the Candor Frame. It's a real pleasure to, to have you. Your work is, is, is very fascinating, and as soon as I saw it, I knew that I wanted to have a chance to talk with you and share, share it with my audience. But one of the things I wanted to, to start off with, though, is that the project started as a result of your interest in wanting to do a project on immigration. Correct. Tell me what sort of um, inspired you to explore that with your work. Well, I'm from Juarez, so, and I'm, I'm Mexican. So when Trump made, on, on his campaign, made the comments that all Mexicans were criminals and rapists. I don't know if you remember oh, that yeah. comment. Yeah, you can't forget that one. I felt very offended because the majority of the people that come here are coming here to work and have jobs that nobody else wants. Our economy, how much would a lettuce cost if you get a guy to that you have to pay him health insurance, benefits, all of this stuff, how, how much will the lettuce cost? How will this affect the economy? So I wanted to show the hardship of the people coming to the United States and also what they're doing. Like, obviously not the same immigrant mm-hmm. because some of them get caught in, the, in transit. Right. But do a project where I included people trying to immigrate to the United States as well as people already in the United States that, that have immigrated. Well, the images became something altogether different. So how did that initial idea sort of become transformed? Yeah. Well, because you have two routes to go when you want to. I had two routes in my work to go and search for these immigrants. The first route 
was through the coyotes. I don't know if you know what a coyote is. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the first route. And where you say, you know what, I'll give you a certain amount of money if you let me go part of the trajectory with you guys and so I can document how hard it is to cross. And for people who are not aware, coyotes are the people that uh, these immigrants usually pay in order to be able to get across across the border. So. Correct. So the answer from the people I contacted was always no, because what if I took a picture of them? Mm-hmm. What if I would expose them with my camera using the flash or just uh, following people along right. and not, you know, following a steady rhythm of how, how they should cross? So the answer was no. And then I went to churches in places where they gave asylum. I guess it's the word, I'm not, refuge to potential immigrants, people from South America, from other parts of Mexico, trying that are barely had enough money to cross and are not, have not yet crossed. Where do they stay? So they stay uh, a lot of times in churches, hostels that are specially for them. So I tried on that route as well. And they were very scared that I would take their picture. If they cross, they will be deported. And, you know, there was just fear. Mm-hmm. But within the social workers that I interacted, uh, explaining my project and trying to say, you know what, I want to do something on social justice. I think this needs to be explored. There was a woman that said, look, I know you reached every outlet in Juarez. It's far as uh, trying to show immigration, and all the doors have closed. But the maid of a church where I work uh, said that she could take you to the brothels if you were interested. Hmm. So when I got the call that basically my project was going to hell, she also gave me, I guess, maybe she felt sorry for me, who knows. She just gave me the opportunity with this woman that... To, to take me to the brothels. So that's how it came. It was just chance. It was, you know, things aligned in that way. So what, what let you open be open to that? Because some people would say, no, this is the project I want to do, and I'm just going to keep trying to make it happen. And Because this is a diff- much different tangent than you had anticipated. So, you know, what convinced you that m- maybe that you can sort of explore similar themes and ideas, you know, focusing on the prostitutes that work in these brothels? Well... When I when I heard that, uh, to be honest, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. do I really want to do that? Especially because growing up in Juarez, the border town of El Paso, Texas, you see the typical cliche of the girls with like the glitter, middle, middle skirts, sleeping with the American tourists. And I thought that's what I was going to see. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like, why do I need this woman to take me if I can just like drive there and see it? Right. But it wasn't the case. I, I still, I, I gave it a chance. I'm like, I have my camera here. I'm already here. I'm ready. Might as well, you know, see what what I can shoot. Mm-hmm. So I basically, I just did it. But when we got inside, the, it was the social worker that drove us. And it was uh, the social worker, myself, and the former prostitute. So when we were driving, they're going to the opposite side of the town okay. from where I thought we were going. We're going to the side of town that my dad always told me, don't ever go there. (laughs) You know, that's the side of town that we were going to. Okay. So once I arrived to the brothels, I was like, oh my God, I need to document this. Especially after hearing the the stories. I, first of all, I didn't, 
the first woman I interviewed, I, I, I talked to, I, she was very scary looking. Uh, I've never met a heroin addict before in my life. And this woman had been raped at the age of six. I mean, just a brutal life that made her very rough. Mm. So when I was asking her to pose for me, I offered her a cigarette. Okay, you want a cigarette? Let's smoke together. Uh, tobacco. So I'm like, so how did you get here? What, what were the circumstances that brought you here? And I didn't know if she was going to slap me, if she was going to say none of your business, mm -hmm. or she's going to tell me that what happened. So as soon as she starts talking and like ex expressing what happened to her, I got my journal. I'm like, I never knew that there that I was going to put text with the photographs. I thought that a picture spoke a million words. Right. In this case, I thought that it would make it so much more powerful if the if you could know what happened to this woman and not only see the photograph but actually know her life and instead of judging her because she's a prostitute see oh my god she has been tormented since the age of six her mother kicked her out of the house at the age of 13 when she found out that her stepfather was raping her mm -hmm. she ended up being a prostitute but what i mean how can you judge somebody like that so that's why the text became such an important part of it and then it's more, it, the more I took pictures, the more I interacted with this woman. The story was like usual. I started here at the age of 15. I started here at the age of 14. No 15 or 14 year old just decides to become a prostitute. Something happens. And this is just the world of exploitation. And how do you expose it? So for me, it was very important to deglamorize. Prostitution, I think glamour, uh, prostitution has been very glamorized in the media, and that's cool, but you hardly ever see the other side of the coin, and maybe because it's very painful. Right. So, considering that you yourself had gone in with a sort of an expectation of who these women are and how they got there and the choices that they made, and the way you sort of envisioned, because you described uh, a very... Uh, you know, them wearing the miniskirts, the makeup, and all that other stuff. So here you have you hear the story of this woman. Now you have the opportunity to photograph her. What were your thoughts in terms of how you wanted to capture her in the photograph that changed as a result of hearing her story? It was during the story. So you only, I only had 15 minutes per girl. Mm, okay. That's it. Wow. That was my total amount of time to photograph. I had a flash. I didn't even have a tripod uh, because I, I needed to have enough equipment that I could actually put it in a handbag and just leave hmm. because it's not very safe. As I've gone in, as I've been going there through the years now, I take a little uh, tripod, but nothing. I don't take more equipment that fits in my backpack. It's just it doesn't make sense. Right. So during those 15 minutes, while they're telling me the story, I will be photographing them. And also it has to do a lot with light. The light's very minimal in the brothels. So how would you? How is the flash going to play a, a part without overexposing the picture? What are the most interesting features? For instance, in the case of Claudia, her most interesting feature, features were her eyes. They were like full of hate, piercing. It was very important that I captured that. Mm. But also I wanted to capture the decaying of the walls in the environment. You say you only had 15 minutes initially in this first in this first brothel that you visited. How many how many women did you photograph and interview that first time? Well, 
I only do 10 at a time, but I've been doing this for three years. Mm -hmm. And I go like one day, only 10. One day, only 10. One day, only 10. The reason why I do this is because I can't carry a lot of them. I pay them. I pay them the same amount of money as a gentleman. Okay. You could want to call him that. So if I carry too much cash, that's putting me in risk. So I have to have enough to hire some girls, but not enough so it's worthwhile for them to attack me or for somebody to attack me. So I figured that 10 was the right number. Okay. So, you know, what were you contending with? Because you, you say you visited these brothels where these women work. You know, who was responsible? Who was, you know, basically the owner of these establishments? Were they, you know, were they independent pimps or madams? Were they members of the cartel? What what, what was the story there with the, with, with the various brothels? That it, you varied. it varied from brothel to brothel. Uh, there were some brothels that were from the cartels where I couldn't get in. Mm-hmm. And once... One time I was actually able to get in, and they kicked me out, and not in a very friendly manner. But So there's everything. There's uh, by uh, gangs mm-hmm. that are dealing with drugs. So basically the gang there is selling the heroin, and they sleep with a client, and boom, they'll buy the heroin from them. So you have, And then there's others that are just like a woman owning the hotel. Mm-hmm. They'll give money to the woman. So it varies, but there's they're all they're all in the same area. So how did your access to the to the brothels sort of evolve and change? Because you you said the initial, you know, the first woman sort of greased the wheels for you to be able to get in, but subsequently, did the work that you'd done previously was that an advantage um, because you'd already photographed in one brothel, or did you always have to start no, from scratch? Not really, uh, because I hadn't gotten exposure to it, so. Like, I could tell them about it or show them pictures, like, when I printed them. For them, they meant, it, it meant, like, absolutely nothing. It was more a matter of, you're here, we are taking a break, we need the money, mm-hmm. and we need somebody to talk to because nobody listens to us. Also, when they were, like, asking about the project, I'm like, well, this is about the same thing, deglamorizing prostitution. And also, to not have judgment, uh, to try to take the judgment away from the prostitute. Because I've never met the girls with the mini skirts. I never have photographed that, that, that um, sector. But the sector that I did photograph like needs a lot of compassion. So how did your perspective change on these women as a result of hearing their stories and spending time with them? Well, it changed tremendously. Because uh, you realize they're, they're not there because they want to be there. They're not they haven't chosen this path. There's some, for instance, that I photographed that their mothers uh, sold them into prostitution at a very young age. These girls are not there because they want to be there. And they get so hooked on heroin, which is, or crack, but mostly heroin, mm-hmm. that it's almost impossible for them to leave. So it's, you know, you start seeing the dynamics, like how deep they are in this whole, uh, many of them come from very rural areas in Mexico, so they have a thir- uh, third grade education, right? So this is a problem, that to work in a factory, for instance, Juarez has a booming economy in the twin plants, American companies that want to build cheap products or whatever, or assembly lines in Mexico, they require a seventh grade education. These girls are not eligible for that type of job. Hmm. So what are their choices? Many of them ended up in Juarez trying to go to the United States. They were separated from the families on the trajectory. 
and ended up in the brothels. So then you have a problem again of immigration. And who are ta who's taking these girls? You know, you get a 13, 14 year old girl cut up, they get the parents, and they don't get her. What's her destiny? Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned that, you know, you were going into a very risky situation. And I read about, you know, one time where you really had to get out of there really quickly. Um, yeah. Tell me about that. I was in the hotel that was led by the cartels. And the guy, one of the guys had led me in, but not the head. Mm. Like one of the, the lower level guys that right. was just there. Well, the head came over and figured out that I was there. Because, like, the girls started getting in line for me to take their picture. You know, it's easy money. And it's fun. I'm like, I, I make I like, I like make them laugh uh, or like that. You know, I make it relaxing for them, the, the photograph. So it's more intimate. So it's not posed. It's, like, more dynamic. And they just started knocking on the mm. door. And they're like, you have three minutes to get all your shit and leave. If not, you're going to regret it. So we, we carried, that's why I like carrying my stuff only in a backpack. And I knew that specific brothel, you, you wouldn't mess with those guys. Mm -hmm. And I think it was very stupid of me to have gone there. When people close to you saw, you know, realized what you were doing, what was the kind of response that you get? What was the reaction you got from family and friends? And Well, my family didn't know. Uh, I let my family know when I had to shop. But before I was doing it, Every time I went, I went home, I would go on my journeys, I would do it, say I was with friends, uh, shooting, you know. Never did they imagine I was in that part of town, shooting and doing what I was doing. I didn't think it was worth telling them and worrying them until I had something concrete. So when I had the show, then I was like, look, I did this, and this is the result, you know. So now they're like, okay, it's your life, you know what you're doing. I can imagine that they were shocked though when when you told them, and where you yeah, were doing he's all my this. Father. Oh, yeah. What did he say to you? If you don't mind me asking. Like, no, he's like, you know what? You're a grown woman. I can't stop you. Mm. So, and he's right. I'm I'm curious. You said you say you grew up in Juarez, and you know there's there's an unusual dynamic that is unlike other parts of the country, in which with towns and, and that are really close to the border. There is a relationship with immigration that doesn't exist if you're in Missouri or if you're in Washington. And growing up, when did you start becoming aware that different people were considered differently as a result of living so close to the border and the whole dynamic of the issue of, of immigration? Well, in El Paso and Juarez, it's, it's a little bit of a phenomenon because Everybody speaks Spanish in El Paso. Mm -hmm. So you, and there's a lot of people that are Hispanics that were born in El Paso, Texas, but are just happen to be of Mexican descent. So you don't see that much prejudice because we all kind of look the same. Right. And Spanish is a, like, it's a, a language that's spoken a lot in, in El Paso. But you always know, for instance, when I was, I went to school in El Paso. Texas. So I would, I would cross the border every day. Uh, I have, you know, I, I had my papers and whatever. I crossed the, the border. Mm -hmm. But you would see, I mean, back in, you know, I'm 40 years old, but back, back in the day, you could see the people crossing the Rio Grande, you know, like yeah. with no shame, just like crossing. And then they would cross back when, after they finished their shift. So made dollars, 
go back to Mexico. So you always knew that that was part of the economy. Now things are very different. Yeah. You have dogs, you have gates, you have everything. Did you start perceiving that some people who, you know, who were coming without papers, that somehow that they were looked at differently, not just by, you know, other people who have, may have been born here or who said identified more as American than Mexican. When did you or when did you sort of observe that that even though initially you may not have seen much prejudice in terms of how people who look the same treated each other, but you know, at some point, you probably, I, I would assume, started seeing that, okay, there is some differentiation. I saw it here. You saw it I here. saw it when I moved to Philadelphia. Oh, okay. Um, That's interesting. Tell me about yeah. that. I mean, I've had everything from, I'm a U.S. citizen. I was born in El Paso, Texas. Mm -hmm. However, I grew up in Mexico. Okay. But I, so I consider my heritage is Mexican. I grew up in Mexico. So I consider myself more Mexican, even though I have uh, dual nationality. Mm -hmm. Anyway. When I'm here in Philadelphia, there's like people, I can't understand a word you're saying. What? You don't speak English? <laughs> like, you know, the way people treat you in the stores and, you know, just you deal with prejudice. You, like, here I felt it. Yeah. Over there in El Paso, well, I didn't feel it. Here, you can see it. So how did that sort of inform what you wanted to do in terms of immigration. Because you said initially it was, you know, the comments made by, by Trump in terms of that inspired, but did some of those personal experience help to sort of you know, ignite the spark? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, because I'm I'm Mexican, I'm here. You know, I could be, have been born in Mexico for, for, for practical purposes, but I'm here doing a good thing, participating in the economy, not hurting anybody, at the contrary, being an activist, and still, they want to throw us all out. Mm -hmm. We're not good. Why? So those are the sentiments I felt like, okay, so you have people that come here from Central America, Mexico, you name it. And they, they, they're happy to come here and clean toilets. Nobody else is like, used to go to McDonald's, to go to all these places. See very, like the majority of the people that you see are people from an ethnic background. Mm -hmm. And still, you want to throw us all out? Why? I mean, not everybody is a criminal. At the contrary, the majority of the people here are hardworking and they're not criminals. It's just being racist. When it comes to creating content for some of my clients for a video or a multimedia project, I've sometimes had to rely on work other than my own. That's especially the case when the client has a limited budget but really high expectations. For moments like this, I've had to use a stock library for stills, video, or audio. Storyblocks provides a solution that's wonderfully affordable and provides income for the content creators themselves. Because Storyblocks provide you access to high-resolution photo, vectors, or images that are all royalty-free. And for the creators who contribute their work, it's also great because they enjoy 100% of the sales commission. You won't find that anywhere else. To find out more, go to storyblocks.com forward slash candid 
to get all the stock images, video, and audio you can imagine for just $149. That's S-T-O-R-Y-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash candid to download anything from thousands of images, video, and tracks, and unlock discounts for millions more. So you're an interdisciplinary artist. So you're not just photography, you're into painting. Did you start primarily as a as a painter and sort of incorporate photography uh, later? So yeah. tell me about the initial interest in painting and working with different materials, and why that was an allure to start with. Well, I was I was trained in Italy, came to the United States, and I loved painting. And my pen, uh, I would paint, and my paintings would sell. So <laughs> I I mean, it just you know it made sense to keep painting. Then I started working with gold leaf and working with Aztec symbols or symbols that resembled my heritage in Mexico. And I always had an interest in drawing people, but I was not that good at it. I knew I knew how to do it. I was trained to do it, but I, I just didn't feel I was... I could do it the way I want to do it. Okay. And with photography, it gave me the chance to basically paint with the camera, using the referencing the art history uh, positions that I love into the women that I photograph. Mm-hmm. So even though they're nudes, I want to bring them dignity. How do you do that? You put them in poses that were used by the masters. So it's not pornographic, it's just, it's pure art. Right. And I felt that the camera could give me that, and my hands couldn't. One of the things that I've heard you describe about your work is that you like to derive a lot of inspiration from uh, symbolism, which is, has a long history in, in Mexican and in, in Native uh, American art from down in Mexico. What, you know, iconography is a, is a, is a big part of, of how you like to use your work, both as a photographer and as, as an artist. What's the appeal there? I don't know. I just think there's something mystical about it uh, that really captures my eye, searching like for my ancestors. What are they trying to say? How can I bring those words into something contemporary? But yeah, like a lot of soul searching from my background. Yeah. So how did you start um, with with the photography? Because you had, was that part of your training in school? Or did that something that came after you started a career as, as after, an artist? After, uh, so I arrived to Philadelphia. I started taking, um, this was, I arrived to Philadelphia 16 years ago. And I didn't have any friends when I first arrived here. So my dad's tip for me to make friends was, well, why don't you take a night class, a continuing ed class? So I started taking continuing ed classes for you name it. But among those were photography, and I just became hooked. Uh, okay. So every term, I would take a continuing ed class at different schools, all the time, different schools. Not, I mean, I would do, uh, let's say, drawing one, drawing two, or uh, photography one, photography two, nighttime photography, you name it. Mm-hmm. But for 16 years, I've been like all over the city in the <laughs> continuing ed department because <laughs> I can't afford to get another, another, you know, bachelor's or yeah. tuition. So I did the continuing ed. And, and when did you start using photography in sort of 
in the way that you're using it now in terms of a documentary, social documentary. This is the first one, first time. First this is the first time. Wow. I did a lot of photography, like personal, like uh, beautiful scenery, my children, you know, stuff that's like interesting, but something where I said something that was powerful and that I wanted to make a, give a message mm -hmm. and that I thought that that message was important. This is the first time. Wow. You know, you, you you refer to the fact that you went down repeatedly over the span of three years to, you know, make make the photographs. And part of, you know, working on a personal project, especially one that offers so many challenges as this, is is that the sort of the goal and sort of the intent sort of evolves and changes over time. You may have started with an initial idea, but as you go out there, you make the photographs, you interact with your subjects, um, your perception in terms of what you're doing and how you're doing inevitably changes. And I'm right. wondering how, what changes occurred throughout the lifespan of the project so far that reflect that. Well, obviously the more I go, the more prepared I am for the light. So now I understand the light better. So I have a better, better lens. Mm -hmm. In terms of flash, that has been very difficult uh, because sometimes the flash just dies on you. Just like there's all sorts of like technical difficulties, Murphy's law, whatever. So you have to be very prepared for the with the flash. But the more pe I I got, was able to like now have a little tiny tiny tripod that I can actually, you know, put put together. Mm -hmm. So I can do better photography. And then the stories I started evolving into because now it's just the former prostitute Luli and myself who go to the brothels. The social worker doesn't go with us anymore. Yeah. She felt that it was too dangerous. So it's just her and me. So one of the things that I thought would keep us safer was if I changed and instead of asking them about their life, ask them about the happiest moment in their life to bring you closer to that person. Is mm -hmm. that she opened a gift in Christmas. Now you're relating. Now she's a human being. Yeah. So stuff like that that I'm working on now. So so when I was doing it, before I was doing the stories, as I've started doing it recently, I've been doing the happiest moment. Mm. You know, one of the things that's, uh, I've read about is that many of the women that you photographed have died. Yeah, yeah, and that's very unfortunate. Yeah, and you know, it may have been due to violence, due to drugs, due to whatever, for whatever reason. You know, that's... That is something that's very difficult to get over. Even though your time with them is fairly limited, you still had intimate experiences with them. And I'm wondering how the reality that these women's lives are, can be cut short so abruptly, how that touches you both as a human being and how, may, how that sort of informs what you're choosing to do. You just mentioned that you're focusing more on the positive end. Is, is that part and parcel of how you're responding to the fact that these women's lives can be, you know, can end so tragically. Yeah. And it's also reminding them that they had a good moment, that their life is not just what it is now, mm -hmm. that they have something to hold on to. For instance, I asked a woman, one of the things I do is I give the money of the photographs to charity. So one of the charities that I give, the money to is Las Madres Oblatas, which is a group of nuns that help the women get rid of rehabilitated and get them jobs, uh, low-income jobs, but jobs. Mm -hmm. They're the group of women that help 
Luli, the former prostitute, get sober. And now she worked in the church and now she's my friend and she goes with me. So I believe in their system because I've seen the results with Luli. So I was interviewing one of the girls and I said, what was the happiest moment in your life? And she started crying. And she's, how her life is absolute a disaster Mm -hmm. and how she wants to change. So I told her, why don't you call the nuns? They'll give you an opportunity. They, they'll get you the money to get to rehab. So she did. So just asking that question to touch her enough may have caused a difference. Wow. So it's not, a, it's not just an exercise for me, but it's also an exercise for them to make them think, oh, my God, yeah, I'm, I was happy before. I had a good moment. A lot of women said that their children, the birth of their children, and seeing their faces. Hmm. Now, you can relate that as a mother. So there, I think that is just as powerful as the stories because it, it brings you together to that person. Seeing the, you know what ha- happened to these women and knowing that you all shared a common sort of heritage, maybe a lot of similar life experiences uh, as children, what, how did you end up changing? How did your perspective about your own life and your own opportunities shift or, or give you a, a different way of looking at it as, as a result of working with these women? You feel very lucky. You're like, how can I possibly complain? I have it really good. And also you feel you have, you owe it to the world to try to make a difference because you were born per se with a silver spoon and they were not. So what do you do in order to make a difference, to make change? In my case, I'm an artist. So the only way I can make change is through my art. If I were a physician or whatever, I would go and donate my time or skills. But I, I help with what I can. Yeah. And for instance, in the case of Claudia, for instance, she was. I went back. I loved her picture. I loved taking pictures of her. She's. I. She was uh, just such a good person to photograph. Uh, I went back, and she had gotten killed. And it's very sad that when I see the pictures, there's never going to be another picture of her. Again, that's it. She's done. She's gone. She's dead. It's not like a like a photograph by another photographer where you can get the same subject mm-hmm. and take pictures of her or whatever. I can't. She's dead. So it also the pictures also show something powerful that she's remembered. She's no part of history. She's not like anonymous. She's you know there's a story behind her. Yeah. You know when it came time to share the work. Um, whether it was in an exhibition or in some other form, what were some of the challenges that you faced in terms of getting the work out there? That it was too sad. So when I tried to show it in galleries, that it's too sad, too depressing. Who's going to want to buy it? Mm-hmm. So I I covered the cost. You know, I, I did it in this co-op gallery where I'm part of, I'm a member of, and it was my turn to show. So I told uh, the gallery owner, hey, this is going to be my show. And so he, he allowed me to, but I was already a member of the gallery. Hmm. But no, that like I, when I'm applying to, to galleries all over the place, uh, they're like, yeah, the work is strong, it's powerful, but it's, it's very hard to sell. It's yeah. depressing. You know, it's re- really interesting to, to, to hear that because one of the things that, I, that come, sort of come to mind is that, you know, in the history of photography, there is work by these famous men photographers that focused on prostitutes. Right, and I think that 
it's interesting to, to hear that reaction to your work when some other work, which is readily exhibited in galleries and museums, where it's obvious that it's prostitutes that were being photographed for whatever reason, are considered art. And here, people are looking at it as, as, as images that well, people don't want to see, which in a completely different context, people readily embrace. Do you see the, the sort of the, uh, that contradiction? Have you observed that contradiction yourself? Well, the thing is, people do want to see it. Like, I had a very high attendance to my show. I was covered by a lot of press, you know, uh, interest, uh, very good collectors purchased my work. So I'm not, you know, I'm not that upset about uh, the show itself. Mm-hmm. But going forward, when I'm trying to deal with galleries, it's very hard. Mm-hmm. So it's like for the show, once I showed it, it was uh, very positive. I showed way, I, I sold way more than I was expecting to sell. But, you know, trying to move along, it's, it gets difficult. Yeah. Uh, one of the choices you've made is that you don't readily show those images on your site um, because of the different articles that have been written uh, about you and your work. Some of the images are, are able to be found, but you made a conscious choice not to sort of showcase them as uh, on your site. And I'd, I'd like to hear as to why. Well, I didn't want to, to risk the people of uh, degrading the pictures with Photoshop Mm-hmm. stealing them from the internet and then putting words on them or making fun of them or something disrespectful to the girls. So, yeah, no, I, I've looked, and you can't find the images if you look hard. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've maybe putting a password so people can, like, the people that I think are in the art scene or the art that they can take a look at it because okay. I do want to make, have the pictures only be shown. If I'm going to p- show the pictures physically, it's only going to be shown in the art, in the arts. Okay. Or, uh, I just gave a lecture at the community college against women against trafficking. I showed the pictures there, but it's like a special scenario. And are you continuing to work, work on this project? Yes. Yes. I was just there in August. Okay. So do you have sort of, um, ultimate goal with with the work do you do you not have a, a a time where you think you'll be done and finished with it i don't know i don't know when i'm gonna be done it's something that i enjoy doing it's hard but i've been there i've been doing that for for a while and i i enjoy doing it mm. i think there's a story that needs to be heard and sometimes I didn't nail certain pictures correctly because of the environment right. or the light or whatever. So I want to make pictures better, pictures clearer to give a better message. But when am I going to be done? I don't know. I mean, right now I'm trying to get a grant for the project on immigration. But instead of immigration doing it, focusing on deportation. Oh, okay. So I can do two things at once because my family's in Juarez. So it's not necessarily very hard for me that when I go visit my family, I can also go to the brothels and take the pictures. It's not like a humongous production because I'm already there visiting my family. Uh, But the grants I'm trying to get are for something in deportation. Mm, Okay. 
Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? I think uh, Gabriel Martinez. And why? He's phenomenal. He's just, I mean, you have to look at, you, you have to look at his work. Yeah. That's all I have to say. You have, it's a must. You have to see it. It's wonderful. I look forward to checking it out. <laughs> well, Ana, thank you so much for your, for your time and for sharing your story. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks to Ada for sharing her time and her story with us. Check out her photography by visiting adatrio.com. And remember, I'll be in San Antonio, Texas for 4x5 Photo Fest on November 18th, conducting two live interviews for the Candid Frame. And in December, I'll be attending the Miami Street Photography Festival, where I'm conducting a masterclass. To find out more on both, click on the link in the show notes. And thank you all for your continued support of The Candid Frame. We are close to releasing 400 episodes, and I would love to see a host of five-star reviews to help promote the show before then. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations that we offer here at TCF. Thanks to Reader and STL for his five-star review. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame, or you'll find the link in the show notes and the Candid Frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on the donate button on the Candid Frame website or the show notes. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. Not only will you immediately receive the latest episode on your phone or tablet, but you can now easily share your favorite episodes on your social networks and help spread the word. And if you want to drop me a line with comments or suggestions for the show, you can email me directly from the app. Download it today by clicking on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor. You can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbarionX. And this is IbarionX, and this is The Candid Frame.